The Great Improbability. This is part two of the audio drama. It has crossed my mind There's so little time That we lived In the sweet forever The Great Improbability An autobiographical mystery by the people of Earth David Sayer, author My old man says colored ain't got souls like us. Yeah, you seen the flap in the science book, remember? One part of the tree goes straight up to the white race, and the other branches don't go up as high. It did not start that way. Miss Gwendolyn had been accepted well enough as a school teacher, despite her dark skin and Caribbean accent. Of course, she was expected to confine her interest to her students and to activities appropriate to us maiden ladies. James Leary, however, was no respecter of such tradition and in need of gentle companionship. He quickly took a romantic interest in his boy's teacher, and she in him. She found in James a gentleness, a vulnerability, a capacity for commitment and trust that somehow we had missed. I was thrilled for him and for Gwen, but most of the small farming community ostracized them. Father Curtin at first counseled against marriage, but eventually agreed, better than an unsanctified relationship, he told me better than hearing from them both at confession every week. Ah, but now the little family has gained a daughter at the great expense of another mother, and now Father Curtin must deal with a disintegrating family cut off from the rest of his parish. Thus, Megan Leary never heard her mother's sweet voice carried on the summer air, but only in muffled chorus with the rushing of blood and breath safe in the womb before their last day together. At night, the little girl confides her feelings to a fading photograph kept in a small shrine next to her bed with the few other fragments of her mother's life around which she weaves elaborate stories late into the night. There are no dresses to hand down, so she wears her brother's old pants. No one knows how to take care of her hair, which springs wild in her mother's tight curls, frolicking outward to her shoulders. Her little room is an attic space. Rough boards from the barn hastily laid over the warped beams to support a small bed given by a neighbor. Above her, the rafters still bear bark from ancient trees and are not high enough to stand under as she grows. On top of them are the roof boards, 
penetrated by rusty square-cut nails to hold down the tar paper that keeps out most of the rain and snow. Down from this secret shrine, she has only her brothers and her father when sober and me, her teacher. She won't come with us. Yeah, she will. I got a plan. We pick her up on the way home from them lessons she takes with Miss Strickland. We offer her a ride. She'll be glad to get it. Nobody's ever friendly with her anyway. She'll get a thrill. Time is the harvest of information, the reaping of experience from the great undiscovered latent future through the funnel of the present to the reservoir of memory. The routine of a family farm, tied to daily chores and seasonal demands, sweeps time past all pleasure and pain. Megan grew. From each school day she stole a little time to read. A few minutes before our morning bell and over her rusty lunch pail at noon, a few minutes after the dismissal bell to avoid the jostling and postpone her chores, a few minutes by dim light at bedtime. In this stolen time, Megan read and dreamed and resolved the world's mysteries and created her own. The child held herself erect, walked always fast, arms swinging, looking left and right wary. She ran like a rabbit up the hill to school every day barefoot, hating shoes, I suppose, because they never fit properly carrying them around her neck and reluctantly putting them on to follow our rules. In my sixth-grade class, she sat forward on her seat, demanding. One of a teacher's major challenges is to hold the attention of students. Most of mine drifted, gazing out our old windows or down at the floor, unhappy to be confined, squirming, often hungry and sleepy. Megan, however, followed me everywhere with those dark eyes, intent and focused, searching, almost unsettling. She was taller than most, a skinny kid but muscular, wiry, large dark eyes set deep and far apart, broad straight nose, wide mouth, hair a midnight chaos, I couldn't help her hair or her clothes, but I could get her to clean her teeth every day, and they grew in straight and white. Her brothers taught her to pitch hay and carry calves and fight. None of her classmates would challenge her directly, but they abused her the more terribly for their fear. Whom could she talk to? Her mother's gone now, her father immersed in his own private tragedy, her brothers in their adolescence. A journal, I thought. At the end of a spring afternoon, after the bell and the banging of desktops and the rushing out of all but one of my students, I saw my chance. 
I would be losing this lonesome, dark adolescent bent over her desk, immersed in a faraway story, in a few weeks. I took a paper bag from my table and crossed my old classroom and squeezed into a desk next to hers. Megan, when I was young and feeling alone, I kept a journal, someone to talk to in private. I could write in it what I couldn't say to anyone. Always made me feel better. Black curls rose from encircling her book. Dark eyes widened, looked far away, then fell again. But I don't have a journal, Miss Strickland. I know, but I found an old diary that no one's used. It has a little lock and a place to hold a pencil, and you can have it if you want. The curve of her mouth turned up slowly, widening, parting to catch the sunlight. The pale underside of long fingers cradled my simple gift, their dark overside closing around it and carrying it to her bosom, just beginning to swell. That night she began to make entries and to practice writing, much to the world's benefit. Outside my diary and books, I had just two friends, not counting my brothers. Miss Strickland taught sixth grade and had been a colleague and friend of my mother. And Squeaky, 